Just a quick note before jumping into today's podcast, the Flip Learning Network is a non-profit and we are always looking for support from our community. There are many options to support us. Please ask us on social media or check out our page at fliplearning.org slash support FLN. We have a Patreon set up. We can accept donations via PayPal. We have an Amazon affiliate link and some other options through sponsorship links on the website. So welcome to another episode of Ask the Flip Learning Network. Today we have Tom Driscoll with us. And um, again, it's a, for me personally, it's a blast of the past. Uh, I met Tom at our my first FlipCon as well. I keep repeating this, but I met Tom at FlipCon. It would be 14 in Mars, Pennsylvania. We were just discussing on the pre-show about him making a trip around Pennsylvania and, and hanging out and talking with Aaron Sams as he does. And uh, I remember reaching out to Tom. Uh, when I first started flipping, I know I was looking at doing some surveys, some pre-surveys and post-surveys for my students as I was doing my first adventures in flip learning. And, and Tom was very gracious and, and, and immediately replied to me with some content. So I, I'll Thank Tom again for that, and welcome to the show. Why don't you give us a little bit more uh, background on you, Tom? All right, thanks, Ken. Uh, first, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, this is, like you said, a, a nice little full circle coming back to some colleagues that that we've worked with a lot in the past, uh, even going back to that 2014 FlipCon. Um, just an incredible professional learning network, and it's it's great that we're still staying connected and, and learning from each other. Um, so just some quick background. I was a social studies teacher in Connecticut for about eight years. Uh, about three years into it, I really um, found, I guess, the, the flip learning uh, approach. I researched a lot of what Aaron and, and John were doing, uh, Aaron Sands and John Bergman. And it was actually at the same time that I was finishing up my master's through Columbia. So I chose that as really my final thesis project for that program. Um, and what it was about was how can we leverage flip learning approaches to democratize the classroom? And that really got me to dive into just personalized learning models, blended learning approaches, and 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 how we can leverage technology to not just you know deliver content in different ways, but how we can open up classrooms so that students have more agency, teachers can develop greater connections with kids. Um, and I was just off from there, and and I connected with tons of teachers from around the, uh, the world through the flip class chat. That probably was probably like in 2012 or 13. Yeah. Um, and um, and yeah, and since then, I actually switched to a new role in 2015. Um, I'm currently the digital learning director for the Bristol Warren Regional School District. Uh, and I've been there for four years now. And I basically help teachers design action research projects around how can we enhance teaching and learning with technology across the board, K-12, and, and uh, in a lot of different areas. So that's been fun to see, um, you know, because my, my high school background uh, that's what, that was my context, but I've been able to spend a lot more time in elementary and middle school classrooms and see what those worlds are like. And then about two years ago, I also began working part-time as a uh, instructor for a group called EdTech Teacher. Uh, mm -hmm. We're an instructional technology company that provides um, professional development services to schools around the world. Um, so that's been fun too, because then I also get to work with school districts. I think I've been to about uh, 25 different states the past two years, just visiting schools, working with staffs and and getting different perspectives from from different people. Um, most recently, though, and this is what I want to talk about in the podcast. Sure. Uh, I'll just get to it. Is I launched a new project with my buddy uh, Sean McCusker, and he um, he and I have a shared passion for civic education. We were both social studies teachers, and we both felt last year that for a, a number of reasons, our eyes been kind of taken off the ball regarding 
the role of civic education in K-12 school systems, particularly when it comes to these innovative approaches to teaching. Like we talk about all these different, you know, blended learning, personalized learning, flipped classrooms, all these things. But a lot of times it doesn't hit home in um, classes around civic ed. And that's what we wanted to do is create this project called the Modern Civics Project, where we can highlight best practices, find teachers around the country that are knocking it out of the park and help raise the profile of civic education, um, not just in the United States, but in other countries as well. Wonderful. No, it's a good background, Tom. Uh, this will be an interesting back-to-back uh, -back with the, the interview I did with Stacy earlier this week, uh, talking about uh, Tech with Heart, with their book that just came out, and, and how to leverage tools to really engage and bring more of the student voice from inside the classroom out. And, and we had a good conversation about that earlier on Monday. So it kind of backgrounds on that. But I wanted to jump into um, how our modern society and, and, and in particular, how we're getting news um, is, is not just affecting um, the, the kids in, our, in your classroom and our classrooms, but also the society in general. I mean, it's all over the news, what's going on with Cambridge Analytica, um, what's going on with, with investigations into administrations being influenced by other governments. Um, I, won't, I won't go into details. I'm, I'm on the other side of the border and, and the Canadian from the other side of the border, but I won't mention which border so far. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but um, how, how do we bring this to the forefront? And I think that's maybe what the idea behind this project was. I just started to look a little bit into it. How, how, do, we, how do we bring this to the classroom? Yeah, so I think there's two big, big parts to this. And one of them, which you just, just touched on is, is when I think about civic engagement, I think about two different things. There's civic understanding and then there's civic action. And I think there's huge shifts underway on both fronts. But as far as civic understanding, like how do we get our information? How do we develop the knowledge of, of the issues of the day? Um, what to even advocate for when we want to advocate? Because civic action without civic understanding can actually be very dangerous. Right. right? So um, the idea of, of digital tools to help us find information in unprecedented ways is a great opportunity for us. Like we can find information about anything we want, but the huge challenge that we face, particularly the last three to four years, is that that content that we are accessing is more and more designed to be exactly what we want to see. Mm -hmm. So the idea of filter bubbles has been around for a long time, but the idea of personalized search and filter bubbles on social media has really been taken to a completely new level these past few years um, and is very problematic. And I think one of the first things we need to teach kids is that that's happening. It's amazing how many adults, even in the United States and in other countries, don't even realize that the information that they see in their feed is tailored specifically to what that company thinks they want to see. Right. Um, so just that the idea of um, actually a colleague of mine, Beth Holland, used the term, I think it was called algorithmic literacy. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not sure if that's going to necessarily take off. But the whole idea that there are algorithms in the background that are feeding you this stuff. Just the awareness that that's happening is, I think, the first step. Right. Um, and then the second thing is, once you know that, what are some different places that you can go to find different forms of information? Um, so one site that I like to point people to quite a bit that Sean McCusker uh, shared with me, is called All Sides. And it's just a website where you pick an issue and it will curate the left, the center, and the right. So viewpoints from all different sides. And again, you have to trust that they're doing that you know, in, in a transparent way, um, but just providing tools and, and um, resources for students and even for parents to use that we can filter through some of these different um, personalized searches and find 
uh, information in a more, um, uh, I guess, non-biased and, and nuanced way. Right. No, that sounds awesome. Now, now, I'm, now you got me searching and Googling at the same time. <laughs> but I think it's interesting because it wasn't that long ago that we weren't talking about these issues in our social media feeds and the algorithmic mm -hmm. uh, display of them, but even in Google searches and, and just yep. in simple PD we give to teachers talking to them how to, how to harness even search um, we'd have, and it wasn't just our students. It was our colleagues saying, mm -hmm. but when I search all this shows up and I'm, well, yeah, but when I search the same term, it doesn't show up the same. Like, what, how, how does that work? And, yep. and people didn't, grasp and i think some of them still don't grasp that the fact that we have all of this knowledge about us um, known by google if you're just choosing to googling something and not duck duck going something um mm -hmm. everything that's known about you is, is fed into your feed um uh, i could use the classic search term of latex i pronounce it latex because that's the uh, typesetting system i use to produce research papers but if someone else types the same word in their browser they just might be showing something else and they should probably have say search on while they're doing that um how how is this changing so fast and how do we get this knowledge to our students through educators in a, in a, in a quick way tom because it's not it's not slowing down no no i i think we have to raise the profile of, of news media literacy in the schools, and it can't just be delegated to the librarian. Because first of all, um, that position is shifting dramatically, and we can't just keep adding more to it. I mean, they're a role in this, but classroom teachers need to understand that if they have a research project or they have anything where kids need to access information, you need to be reinforcing these tools and these ways of finding that type of information and advocating for it. And it's not just social studies classes. So um, any time that you're designing a solution to a problem, which I think should be a cornerstone of just about any class, um, yeah. a lot of times you need to engage in finding information on public sources. Um, and then when you advocate for it, and this kind of gets to that second piece, that civic action, how you advocate for a cause or for a solution that you have, it's not just sending out flyers or knocking on doors. You have to like almost design and run a social media campaign around a cause. Mm -hmm. So the kids have that literacy as well. So not just finding it, but how do they actually communicate through the modern platforms that actually get people engaged and capture people's attention? So it, it, that's a kind of a, a transition where yes, we there are challenges to the way that feeds are personalized and all that. But I think as far as mobilizing for action, we can leverage some of those tools on the flip side to rally around a cause in ways that are unprecedented. Right, and even getting to just basic empathy, which we should be mm -hmm. teaching in our schools. Yes. And often we see with our, our especially our university students, and we're in uh, IT or science, so we're having tech solution problems, and they're used to being the nerds in their family where anyone has a problem with a computer, they ask that person to do it. Yeah. And um, we find a lot of times that our students, especially since they come from privilege, they think that they have the solution to your problem, and they haven't even figured out what the problem is. And sometimes we need to ask what the problem is and understand it and, and get a better grasp of it before we go looking for solution. And, and I think sometimes we focus so much on the solution and teaching our students how to solve problems as opposed to mm -hmm. figuring out what they are. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. I mean, it's something that I really like is that the design thinking approach. We're starting with empathy mapping and, and figuring out what is what is the, the user experiencing? What is the what is a problem before you start trying to, like you said, design a solution to a problem that maybe doesn't even exist? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a teacher in my school, Jen Saarinen, who's teaching a middle school course, and they're basically using the design thinking process, starting with an empathize phase 
around uh, designing solutions for the UN sustainability goals. Mm-hmm. And I think that the idea of having students engage in some type of empathy, either mapping or research before they even define what the problem is, is really powerful. Because so many times you go into a school, you can ask a kid like, you know, did you design a question today? It's very rare. They're always mm-hmm. answering questions. Mm-hmm. How do we show kids not just how to ask a question, but to do the background research to find out what questions to even ask. And that's a huge part of civic action or any related problem-based um, learning. So again, we're trying to weave that into say a civics course or something around um, around taking action on a problem you care about. The first step really should be empathizing with that group that you're trying to solve for before you start designing any solution. Well, sure, and asking questions. And yep. Flipping back to our, our background of flip learning network gets mm-hmm. us to to uh, we, we can't have a podcast without mentioning Whisk and Crystal Kirch um, about getting the students to ask the questions of, of, of the content they've consumed outside of the classroom before they get in and, and we're actively learning. And, and the classic answer of, oh, I don't have any questions, which usually meant you didn't look at the material and that's why you don't have a question. Yes. Uh, yeah. That's the, the immediate reaction. But sometimes it's because they're afraid of making a question which um, points them out. And, and I think forcing our students to ask those questions with the, with the kind of metacognitive role of, well, ask the question that your colleague here that doesn't understand it would be asking if they didn't understand it to try to make them think outside the mold. But I think the power of getting our students to ask the questions and not just be always answering our questions is really, really important here in, in what you're working on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a powerful driver of this. And and if, if you think about, like say, related back to some of the flipped learning approaches, um, one of the things that we're advocating uh, for civic educators is to offload some of that direct instruction leverage tools like um, I think Crash Course, you know, I used to use a lot of those videos. They have a whole uh, series on civic education now. You can create your own civic ed videos. Like on the Modern Civics Project, we have a whole channel of ones that me and my former colleague, um, we made during our prep periods, we would make quick, you know, half hour videos. We'd chop them up into four minute segments. We have a whole series of, of civic ed videos. But the whole point is that the students would engage with those throughout the learning cycle, but it wouldn't just be a class lecture and then do an assignment. They would access it when they needed it, if they needed it. Right, so it's really more of a resource like anything else. Um, so that's that's another part of how do we weave in like flipped learning in those approaches into a, a civic ed course um, so that students have more time to engage in inquiry that uh, one program I, that I really love out there, actually two that are all around this is a generation citizen and project citizen. Both of them mm-hmm. really have students engage in this idea of identifying a problem, solving it and advocating in their community. You can't do that if you're lecturing all day. Right. Right. So you do have to offload some of that content, have them engage with it in different ways, but open things up so that it's more of a project based learning environment. The old days of teaching civics where you just, you know, how, how does a bill become a law and all of that stuff? Like, <laughs> one, it's always been mind numbing. Right. So well, that's a schoolhouse rock. That's schoolhouse rock. Just show you fine. Show your schoolhouse rock video. and move around, Right. So um, I think there's a huge shift in how we approach civic ed. Um, and, and I think blended learning, flipped learning models are a big part of that because it can enable us to get to more inquiry-based approaches to it um, because you don't have to sacrifice the content. You're just shifting it. Um, right. and I think that's a good first step for a lot of teachers that are trying to redesign what a government class or a social studies course around civic uh, literacy could look like. 
and not just shifting out of lecture in the classroom, but shifting the students outside of physically the classroom yes. and getting them out into the community and, and, and not inside those chairs. I would That's think. a perfect example of that. We just had last week, Generation Citizen had our civics day at the Rhode Island State House. We had students from our district going, presenting their, their public policy proposals. And then beyond that competition where they shared with, I think it was around 300 other uh, students around the state, they then took the, the team that ended up winning for ours went to the town council meeting and proposed the ordinance. I think theirs was about, you know, a plastic straw ban or, or something along those lines, but they're getting traction in our own community. So it wasn't just a project for the teacher. Right. The audience for that project was the community. And that's wonderful. And that's, and that's not handing in an assignment for one. Right. right. And, and, and that's personally, I want to, I want to go more into that. We're doing that with some of the projects we're doing with tech 21 and the semester. I, that I talked with you about online where, where students are doing, um, a full semester project instead of six classes, um, six academics uh, aiding them with the content structure around a project. And it's all a lot outside the classroom. Um, but I think it's really important to get them um, thinking how it's not just as a disposable assignment that they're handing in. It's something that has a long range effect and may or may not live forever. Um, I, some of my colleagues are, can go overboard making it too important what the deliverable is whereas i want to focus on the educational practice getting towards something but um sometimes those projects do keep going and that's that's even better so that's that's mm -hmm. a wonderful thing there too so um let me also make sure everyone knows that i'll put all the links in the show notes i think i'm a little bit crazy with the amount of show notes i send out but it's moderncivicsproject.com Correct. Where, where the project is. And the most recent post is enhancing civic education with game-based learning, which has an excellent image in the background as well, by the way. Um, tell us about that, Tom. Yeah. So this was a passion of mine. Actually, I think I presented on this at FlipCon. So I think it was, um, you know, applying game-based learning to, to the flip classroom and things like that. So I really started to explore the, the power of gamification and game-based learning and, and did some research on, on engagement and, and um, its impact. And one tool that I always used when I was teaching history uh, or social studies was uh, the iCivics program. So that's just one example of, um, if you're not familiar with that, that actually started out by an organization by Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, former chief just, uh, um, Supreme Court Justice. And the whole goal was how do we not just provide like gamified content, but a simulation of a democratic experience. Cool. I think that's what sets those apart is there's a lot of games that are not very good. It's kind of like modern day math blasters. Not that math blasters wasn't good, but it was like <laughs> do some math, shoot a zombie. Like there was no connection. There was no meaning behind the game. It was just like do something boring and do something fun. After. Right. It was just an evolution of drill and kill. Yeah. It is. Some people call it like chocolate covered broccoli. Right. So mm -hmm. it's and a lot of gamification is still like that. It's still just boring stuff with some game layers on top. But what I like about things like iCivics and other simulation games is that it's not about that. They're actually engaging in a simulation of something that they may actually do out in the world um, that might be impossible to actually replicate or tough to replicate in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, instead of just learning about, um, you know, different amendments and the rights that you have, one of them, which I loved uh, teaching, was about you design, like, you have like a constitutional law firm that you have to build up and solve cases. You have to decide which clients are worth taking on, uh, what rights may have been violated, how do you defend them? So maybe it's just kind of like the, the dorky social studies teacher in me sure. that, that part. But the whole idea is that you're engaging in some real life experience that you could have. Um, there's ones on voting about uh, mobilizing around a cause, around civic action. Um, the whole point is that it's not just learning about the Constitution, about the three branches of government, 
you're actually engaging in something a citizen would do, uh, which is really powerful. Um, the other thing is that when you have gamification in the classroom, it doesn't always have to be digital. So there's actually a group out there called Politicraft, and it's actually like an old fashioned card game, um, but it's designed around, um, you have students engaged in some type of conversation and they have to, like the point of the game is you, you have a, um, an issue that you're focusing on, you design a, a public policy solution to it, and you have to engage in some type of civil discourse live in class with others. Wonderful. So again, it's gamification, it's game-based learning, but a lot of people immediately think it has to be on a computer. It could actually be a more traditional game that you play out live in class. Well, yeah, definitely. Um, and there's more social interaction. Well, I, 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 I reject the, the fact that it's online means there's no social interaction. But there's, there's opportunity for different forms of communication in the, in the physical class. Um, I love what you, what you just talked about with the game-based learning and the fact that it, it brings people to understand their environment, whether it's knowing about how laws are passed or, or knowing how the voting system works. Uh, also ties to the other post that I uh, remember now what I wanted to talk about that, that it, a lot of our problems with, with people not knowing what's going on in our politics and our culture and our civilization is that they don't understand how it works. And, and, a, and a system that's game-based learning like you're talking about, I think one thing that's cool is students will drop the game and then go and then go search on the web or in the library or something for content that's going to help them win that game. And then they're learning mm -hmm. about the content outside the game, which also reinforces the lifelong learning that we really want to push them and self-directed learning as well. So I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I hope that just this idea of game as like a four letter word for some teachers, like they just don't want to, they don't want to touch it. They, they still sometimes see games as like a waste of time or something that students um, maybe aren't being as productive as they could. Uh, and I think that that stigma really has to shift because there are ways that we can leverage the power of games and game-based learning um, in the classroom. Uh, like, like we started that, that go beyond just the drill and kill and, and it's more about immersive experiences for our kids. And then having them design games, that's another part of it. There are a lot of tools out there where kids can actually go in and create their own. I mean, think about Scratch, how far that, mm -hmm. like the new version of Scratch 2.0 on the web, they can mm -hmm. go in and design their own civic action game as a way to demonstrate their understanding. Uh, so right. and, and, then, and then they're sharing the code for it. Like, yep. There's my open source advocate <laughs> badge coming out. And then they're sharing it. But it's important because I watch my children. Um, use, they've been using Scratch for a long time. And it's not just seeing what other people are building. They're, okay, now I want to see how they built it yep. in, in terms of the, the coding part of it and looking at how they're hacking on those games. And there's some other um, systems around as well that we, we could look at for um, what our kids are playing online. But it's it's a lot more interaction between them and and I think maybe there's some cultural biases there. I talked about that with Stacy as well on, on Monday when we had an interview that games are are not learning. Whereas, you know, if you really look at the psychology and the history, that's how we learn and that's why kids yeah. play and that's why we should continue playing as adults as well. Um, so there, I think we need to get by that bias with our educators. So maybe there's more work to be done with educators than it is with our students. Um, one reason I've none of this PD stuff I do is my actual job. I just do it because I want to do it. And I, I, I talked with a colleague that's not an educator that I think the reason I do that is to have an impact on more students. And so is that is that kind of what your goal is behind this project is to have a larger impact or 
Or there's also probably the selfish goal of learning from others as well, which is always a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the main goal is that we're trying to elevate the status of this topic. I mean, both of us feel like it has not been as much as it could. It, it has super strong advocates in its spheres, you know, so, but beyond that, I just right. feel like in general, we need to come back to this. Frankly, it's one of the reasons we have an education system mm -hmm. is to prepare uh, students to be active and engaged citizens that are knowledgeable and that can, especially if we're living in a democratic republic, that should be a goal of our education system. We need to refocus on that. But what I think me and Sean's um, uh, unique opportunity here is that uh, we have a professional learning network that's so broad that has so many different entry points. We're trying to leverage that to try to bring as many great ideas as possible to the table so that we can learn together. And also, I do feel like there's a rising tide, in, particularly in the United States, around refocusing this. So, for instance, Illinois and Massachusetts just recently passed legislation that's creating uh, more of a focus on civic education and preparing Wonderful. Um in Rhode Island, I was just part of a, a civic education uh, coalition meeting at the uh, state house a couple weeks ago. We're trying to get uh, more focus there uh, as well. So I think that the states are getting involved. Um, I pray to God that it's more than just a citizenship test as a requirement to graduate. If, if that's where some states start, that's okay. I mean, it's not a bad thing. It's a start. But we, we really got to think beyond that because that is very, you know, rote learning to just right. a citizenship test. Um, but either way, I think that there is based on some of the current things that are happening in society, there is a refocus on, all right, are we really preparing students to, to thrive in our democratic uh, environments? And what I also like too is how can we prepare them to make it even better? Because we know that there are problems with how our institutions are run right now. So can this be the generation that can really step up and make some shifts? They're not going to do that unless we, we provide them with a good foundation or it's, they could, but it would be harder. So right. that's my other bigger loftier goal is that like this really is an investment in our democracy. Right. You know, and that's that's an impor really important to me personally. And, and I think they're, they're, the, the word measure comes into play a lot there. And, and I think often we're measuring those certain things because those are the things that are easy to measure in terms mm -hmm. of are they memorizing these facts um, yeah. with a drill and kill type um, and a standardized testing focus that's been our, um, uh, I would, I might not use the word plague, but I'll, I'll put it out there a little bit, but putting too much of a focus on what's easy to test, easy to remember, um, and, and using that word that it's getting better is sometimes dangerous because then when we're saying better, we need something that's really easy to measure to say that it's better. So I think we need to, um, mm -hmm. we need to focus on these things that aren't so easy to measure that, um, we're making a better society um, and, 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 and civics education, I think is something that I don't think it's easy to measure is this student graduating with more knowledge, but it doesn't mean we need to put less focus on that and more focus into what's easy to measure in terms of math scores or, or literacy scores or um, standard literacy scores. Um, so I definitely applaud those those movements that are happening in some of those states to to push back on that. So that's great. Yeah, I mean Massachusetts. Like, so an example of what you just said about like what's easy to measure is is not exactly what is a good good determination of a kids, right? Like someone said, what is civic literacy for kids these days? And they came out with something and it was some obscure question about the 14th amendment. Right, a big and list. Everyone got it wrong, and they're like, oh look, they're not prepared to be citizens, and that is 
bogus, right? Eighty seven percent or more yeah. of the citizens over the age of eighteen would not pass that test. Yeah, so it's it, and it's obscure stuff that yeah, sure, should they know it? Yeah, I guess, but it's not essential. Like, so what I love about what Massachusetts did, and again, it's a work in progress, but part of that bill that they passed was middle school students would engage in some type of action civics project. Like that's the bill that they engage yeah. in their community, that they're, they're designing a problem. It's not past these, this multiple choice quest, uh, questions at the end of the year. It's engage in your community, try to make a difference, engage in the democratic process. And that's the model that I feel like states should go towards or school districts should go toward. Because then the other thing is it's not just one more thing you're adding on. Mm-hmm. Every school district wants kids involved in their community. They want kids engaged in authentic experiences. Right. Um, so this can weave into other projects, interdisciplinary units, project-based learning. It's not an add-on. It's just how do we incorporate civic action in mobilizing around a cause into some of the existing structures that we already have. And then the educators and the administrative part on that side get a win because more people actually knowing what's going on inside the schools is a good thing. Yes. Um, yep. to, to, to avoid the everyone being an expert about education who's not actually in education and don't even know what's going inside the schools, having them actively engage. And this is one thing that I love about flip learning for elementary schools is mm-hmm. getting the families more engaged in what's going on inside their, their children's classrooms is, is always a, a huge gain. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a big gain. So I, I love that as well. Um, besides just the great thing of getting our, our children involved and, and the and the teachers and the faculty involved in, in education projects outside the school classroom walls. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. What else, what else, what's the bigger goals here? It, uh, um, is this very US focused? Is this international um, applicable as well? What's- yeah, abs- I mean, this, we're starting out, um, where we are primarily. So I'm in the Northeast and Sean's in the Midwest. So uh, those are areas we're focusing on particularly, but like I said, we have uh, connections and, and, and part of our professional learning network all over the place, including (laughs) yourself um, in, in different countries. So we're open to anybody that's willing to engage in this dialogue. Um, And my kind of, my, my call for, for action for the listeners here is, you know, if you have ideas, if you have people that you want to connect with this project, if you want to do a guest post on the blog, create a video, engage. We have a, a podcast called So We've Been Thinking that we've, we've been highlighting mm-hmm. educators. Um, so become part of this. Help us uh, raise the status of this. Um, because, again, it's, it's not just an issue specific to one area or one school district or one country even. Um, getting students involved in their in their local communities and taking action on, I think, is a is a cause that everybody can mobilize around. Um, so we really do want as many people as as we can to get involved with this and help us out and provide some ideas and support if they could. Excellent. No, that's that's where I was going to go with but with a closing thing is as how people can contribute. And I love that it's always open. Um, well, it's a biased thing because the Flip Learning Network site was converted to be more of a community site where anyone can contribute. Sometimes it's hard to get people to contribute. And I think part of the problem is our communication of letting people know, hey, if would you would like to write something, would you like to record something? Would you like to share about a project? It doesn't have to be big, it doesn't have to be small. It could be just a little opinion piece or a poem. It could be talking about your project that you had in class and, and definitely uh, an outreach to social study teachers worldwide to contribute. I think it would be great to see these similarities and differences of what's going on worldwide. And I think um, we, a lot of us that live outside the US and I've got that benefit of being a Canadian that lives in Mexico and, and yeah. the US is a sandwich between us. 
that a lot of our views of people from your country is they don't have a vision of what's going on outside their borders. Right. And, and I think it's really important for, um, for educators there to reach out to educators worldwide. And this is the cool thing about this internet that we can, we can connect classrooms and connect teachers, but also as well, uh, there's a lot of stereotypes of what's going on inside the US that a lot right. of educators outside should um, get past those stereotypes and actually reach out to educators and, and communicate with them. So I love that call for them to participate on, on the site. Uh, yeah. Again, again, what's the name of the site again? So, uh, ModernCivicsProject.com. Uh, and we actually, we just got a, a, a teacher connected with us that has a few articles that were uh, written for another platform that she'd like to cross post. Mm -hmm. uh, that's another thing too, is even if you have existing content that you want that says, Hey, this relates to this, we like to cross post it. We'd love to promote uh, your ideas on this platform as well. So definitely just reach out to us. Um, you can also reach out to me, uh, on Twitter. Uh, it's Tom Driscoll, uh, edu. Um, and I can connect you with Sean as well. Um, but yeah, we're looking to connect with as many people as possible and help spread your message. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for reaching out, Tom. I'm, I'm glad I sent out that spammy post with a <laughs> bingo card from Flipcom yeah. 2014. It was fun to just connect to a lot of people that we hadn't yeah. talked with. It took me half an hour to go and find everyone's names. <laughs> but it was a blast going through that. But I'm glad that you were able to reach out um, one thing I know a lot of us in the flipped learning community have kind of moved on, but we're still there and, and we all find different roles. Um, and, and part of what I've been trying to do since I became the, the chair of the board of the flipped learning network is to tie in those that are doing new and interesting things and don't necessarily are uh, quote unquote flip teachers, but doing all sorts of things and using flip inside of their um, environment, inside their classroom and bring them to all of us to talk with. So I'll also uh, extend the invitation. Anyone who wants to join us either on the podcast or with Tom on his site or, or here on the Flip Learning Network site, um, please reach out to us and, and, and suggest guests or suggest posts or suggest any other kind of interaction we want to have happening between these two different communities. Excellent. Thanks again for joining me, Tom. Uh, any, oh, actually, uh, there is a couple questions I had for you. Name, uh, Name a favorite teacher. My favorite teacher is Mark LeBlanc. He was my 10th grade, actually he was a middle school and high school teacher. He taught the We the People Center for Civic Education curriculum. Our team won Rhode Island. We went down and presented down in DC and I will forever remember that trip and that teacher. And he actually inspired me to, to go down the path of being a teacher and, and loving civic education. So that was an easy one, Ken. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And, and I'm stealing this from Christian Friedrich, who posted this to Bonnie Sokoviak on Terry Green's podcast, which is a long trail. But um, if you could think of or make up, what was the first album or uh, music piece that you bought? And is that at all connected via the title or lyrics or feeling to why you're an educator? Um, <clears throat> this... This is going to have to be a stretch because listen to this. The first CD I think I bought was Crisscross. Do you remember okay. Crisscross? No, I don't. I'm going to have to. You, you've got. Oh my god! Stuff. It was like a rap duo of these two 12-year-old kids. Awesome. And they wore their pants backwards around their knees or something. Oh, I like that. remember this. Maybe you're a little younger than me, Tom. So it's a it's a little past yeah. where mine would go. And plus, you you named CD instead of album. Yes, that's true. Um, but um, God, how, how would I connect that one? Um, so to connect it to anything in education? Yeah, or why, why does that one, why do you remember it? I think one of their main songs was Jump. Mm -hmm. They say like Jump Twice or something like that. 
So here, here's here's mine. You got a new idea. You got something you're passionate about. Jump into it. Awesome. And that's it. And that's what I do. <laughs> Probably I to a fault. But uh, I, it's, it's a surprising question. But I, I love that we can ask what your favorite teacher is. And we all can just come up with a list. Yeah. And, and there's reasons why. And we remember their names. And we remember specific experiences with them. And I think a lot of us, not everyone has, has deep connections to music. And, and yeah. it brings us back to more or less the same time period. So I, I, yeah. I like that we've tied those questions together. And, and some people... Uh, it's a difficult answer. <laughs> some, some people, it's an embarrassing answer, but uh, often doesn't matter so much anymore. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Tom, and, and playing along with my game at the end. And uh, definitely stay in touch. I'm very interested in the project. I'm gonna I'm gonna connect some of my colleagues here in this area as well. Perfect. Thanks so much, Ken. I appreciate all the work you're doing for the uh, Flip Learning Network. Keep all it right. Up. Have an awesome day. Thanks. You too. The Flip Learning Network is the original online hub of the Flip Learning community. We are a not-for-profit organization whose mission includes providing access to a wealth of tools, resources, and professional development opportunities. We hope to help educators build on the possibilities inherent in flip learning and to explore evolving student-centered instructional practices. We invite educators everywhere to explore the resources available at fliplearning.org and to contribute to the discussion through comments, questions, and by submitting your own posts. Indeed, the site is built on the contributions from flipped educators like yourself who write blog posts. We also encourage you to join us on Slack where we have an ongoing dialogue. More information on the site about that. You can help support the FLN by making your purchases through our Amazon.com affiliate link at fliplearning.org Amazon, or you can support us directly on a monthly basis as a patron at Patreon. The short link for that is fliplearning.org slash Patreon. Thank you.